I'm Jay Pitts, a real estate broker, agent, leader, and investor. For the last decade, I've navigated the craziest of real estate markets this country has ever seen, selling over 2,000 homes, moving in and out of markets, always ahead of the curve. And now I'm bringing that perspective to you. This is your resource, and Real Talk About Real Estate starts right now. Welcome back to Resource Real Talk about Louisville Real Estate. I am your host, Jay Pitts. I am joined by fellow associate here at REMAX uh, Premier Properties with me, Mr. Ian Hooper. Hey, everybody. Ian, welcome. Uh, we are here for season three, episode eight, after a slight hiatus. I think the last time you heard from us here at Resource was back in April. Uh, obviously, we've been dealing with a nationwide pandemic and all that that entails and uh, really just, you know, decided to take a little time off and focus on the agents in our office and our families and that kind of thing. But we're proud to be back with you. Obviously, uh, a lot of things have uh, have come and gone, a lot of happenings. We are a nation that is that finds itself in the midst of, uh, you know, a, a serious conversation right now. And that's going to be the topic of today's conversation. Uh, I asked Ian because of a conversation he and I had just here recently after he was recently featured in Inman Magazine. Those of you that uh, are not familiar with Inman, it is a trade publication for mostly residential real estate professionals, but surrounding the topic of race and racism in the United States and housing. Ian was quoted um, and, and made some very cogent points about the state of you know, how race affects housing. And I think that really, after my conversation with Ian, we come to the conclusion that we're not sure that the average real estate professional in our market understands just the impact that certain policies and procedures in the past and how they have affected how we exist. So Ian, I'm not going to, I'm not going um, to overshare or bury the lead. I definitely want you to share with our audience your thoughts on the topic. But uh, I, I understand that you also have a lot of research on the topic as well. Yes, thanks, Jay. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Ian Hooper. Um, I have done some research and thoughts about questions about race have been, I mean, it's, it's a part of who I am. And I think that that is um, one of the things I want to talk about before we even talk about data that is um, important here in our market in Louisville. Um, I just want to talk about, I want to let people know that I understand how hard it is to talk about race and to talk about racism. Um, I am, I'm biracial. My father was black, my mother was white. Um, and I grew up in a, with this interesting conflict within myself. So much of what I did outside of, so much of what I did socially would be considered white. Um, but there were aspects of my life and still, and, and even today, um, and there are aspects of, of in my normal life, my entire life, including today where I feel where I'm, I am clearly aware that I'm the only black person in the room. And, um, and, you know, as, even as I think about how I was picked to interview, be interviewed by Inman, um, it wasn't because I'm some industry know-it-all or some industry guru. Um, I have a feeling it's because 
She searched top producing teams. And I was the first black face she came to on a uh, top producing teams website. Um, it's, it's just just what I think, because there would have been no other reason for the for the reporter to call me um, other than some other more established agents in town, black agents in town. So I'm aware of this. And um, but I'm also aware that when I am with black folks, whether it is professionally or socially or whatever, there is a connection. But then there's also this inner conflict with me um, just because of the way I was raised. And so I know if that's in me, then there's also questions for other people that don't have any connection between black and white. Either they're white and they don't really know what, I don't really understand the black experience. Or they're black and they don't really understand the white experience. Um, I have this interesting view of both, but then at times I wonder if I actually even understand either. But, um, yeah. but, but because my, so my mom was an educator in J, well, both my parents were educators, but my mom was the multicultural education specialist for JCPS. And her job was to teach teachers how to teach kids about people that look different than them. To, simple, to oversimplify what her job was for like 20 years of my life. Um, to make sure the teachers weren't just teaching about old dead white guys when there were plenty of, uh, plenty of black people and plenty of people from other ethnicities. It wasn't just about white and black. Um, her job started out to be all about white and black, um, but it became so much more than that. But I think what we're talking about right now is white and black. We're talking about... Um, so I'm going to... I will talk about black. I understand that... It may not be, um, some people may not find it politically correct for me to say black. Some people may not, some people may be confused why I'm not saying African-American or some people may have been recently um, conditioned to use the term people of color. Um, but I'm talking about black people. I'm talking about people who, if we go back a couple of generations, two or three generations, um, were their ancestors were slaves in the United States. I'm not talking about people that have come to the United States um, by choice in the last 100 years, 50 years, 20 years. I'm talking about people who, um, whose ancestors were, if you go back far enough, were brought to the United States um, before it was even the United States on boats um, against their own will. That's the people we're talking about. Sure. Um, so my hope for what we can do, and we're gonna talk for a few minutes today, 20, 30 minutes today. My hope is not that we can come up with a solution or an answer, but my hope is that folks that are listening to this, and I know it'll mostly be real estate professionals, um, can maybe learn something, find a couple of new resources, and I have a few to share. Um, one really, really awesome one that was created in Louisville about Louisville, um, and can maybe find it in themselves to learn to learn about other people. You know, we have, um, with our growing, our increase of online leads and Zillow leads and realtor.com leads or whatever, we don't really have much control over who comes, who we end up on the other end of the phone, on the other line of the phone with. But there is a, we do have a choice of which one of those phone, one of those internet leads 
we engage the most with and which one we dig into the most and, and which one we educate through the deal and which one we, we stick with and continue to follow up with, even if they're not qualified when we, when we first meet them. Um, we, we may not have a sphere of influence that's very multicultural at all. I mean, your sphere of influence may be all white. Your sphere of influence may be all black as a, as a realtor. But, you know, one of the things that we can do as real estate professionals in this lane that we have, you know, I'm not, I'm not downtown with a picket sign. I'm not. It's not what I'm choosing to do. But um, I have done some inner reflection over the last few weeks of where can I be the most use? And as a real estate professional, I can be the most use right here. Um, and so we hear a lot about systemic racism and people may not know what that means. So let's talk about what that means in terms of real estate. And I'm going to share my screen in a minute, um, in a, in a minute. Um, we are, um, excuse me. Well, Ian, let me, let me, let me jump in right there. So, so I, I will say that, you know, I read the Inman piece obviously, where you were, you were interviewed and you gave your thoughts. And, and one thing for our audience, if you, if you don't know Ian, you know, cause most of our, our audience is Louisville real estate agents, right? And so if you, if you don't have the pleasure of knowing Ian, if you haven't had the pleasure of working on the other side of a transaction with him, one thing I can tell you is that Ian is a very thoughtful individual. And so everything he's going to share with you today is, you know, his, you know, his feelings um, from personal experience and from research he's done, and it's well thought out. I can tell you that he and I have talked a little bit leading up to the call today. Um, I try to be those same things, but I know that based on who I am and my history, that I I haven't had the same experiences that Ian has had. So I, neither of us are claiming to be the resource, okay, or the person capable of analyzing where you may stand on these issues. But I think most thoughtful individuals as a result of the protests we've seen in the last two weeks in the United States of America and all 50 states um, and, and, you know, the feelings and the passion that exists surrounding this issue, most of us have probably done some thoughtful introspection, mm-hmm. right? And what I know is that I could never understand what Ian may go through in a day-to-day, in his day-to-day world. He probably can't understand exactly where I could go through too, because we're two different people, you know, but, but we can respect one another and each other's opinion. And part of the reason why I wanted, um, you know, to, to, you know, lend this platform to Ian and his voice is because I know he will bring you a thoughtful analysis of, you know, how this has impacted the history that we cannot change, that we cannot erase the things that have existed. Okay, in our community, how it's affected what we see in Louisville today. Okay, and there's some specific things. And Ian, I I don't I don't want to jump ahead of you, but I know we're going to talk about the Ninth Street divide, right? I know we're going to talk about segregation in today's community. Okay, and I think you've got some very interesting points to share on on why that stuff exists. So I'll throw it back to you there, man. But I just definitely wanted to say that you know this is not just a something from the past. This is something that exists in our community today. Yep. Right. Yes. Thank you for, thank you for, for bringing me back to where, (laughs) to where I needed to be. I got like, I I went off and thank you. Thanks for bringing me back. Sorry, man. That's all right. No, It's perfect. So, 
um, I don't believe that we would be in, I don't believe that we would be in this situation that we are in the United States and in Louisville right now if we lived together. Yeah. But, but largely. But we don't, do we? We large, largely we don't. Um, and we have some really beautiful data to show how we don't. Um, there's a, a, a researcher, an activist in Louisville named Joshua Poe, P-O-E. You can Google him. You can look him up on Twitter. Um, he, is, um, he has created this wonderful story map, and I'm going to share it really fast. Share yeah. screen. So, so for those of you listening on iTunes or wherever you podcast from, okay, what Ian is doing is showing, you know, sh- sharing his screen. And, and I encourage you if, you, if you typically consume this show via podcast, that you, you find us online. We, if you're a real estate agent and you're not a member of our private Facebook group, reach out to me. You know how to find me. I will add you. Um, and I'd be more than happy um, to have you consume this episode specifically, okay, on in video version, because there's going to be some really, really interesting visuals that are incredibly powerful and, and, and tell the story um, that Ian's about to share with you. So do that, but we'll do our best to also explain kind of uh, the, 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 the general kind of outline of what we're talking about. Yes. So, w- when we took our licensing exams, there were some terms that were talked about that weren't really gone. I did mine in an online course, so I'm sure some people maybe got a little bit better education into some of these terms than what I did, but they were just told, told to us as things that were discriminatory, against fair housing, and therefore bad, but not really explained to in depth. And the first one is redlining. And which is, map- which is a term we've heard. We've heard mm-hmm. a little bit in the last two weeks. It's, it's, it's kind of bubbled to the surface um, in, in the popular conversation, right? Like, like news and, and that kind of thing, right? Yes. So this really wonderful um, website, this collection of maps, um, we can find it locally on our logic maps, um, arc data maps. But if you Google redlining Louisville, story map, Joshua Poe, or some, 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 um, and we will, we will provide a link in the, in the, yeah, the link will be in the show notes and it'll be shared in the comments of the, of, of the, the video that when we share that as well. Absolutely. So this gives an actual visual of 1937, I believe map 1930s. Let's just call it the 1930s map. Um, it was created by the home owners loan loan corporation. Homeowners Loan Corporation, um, which was, and this map was given to realtors and lenders so that they could understand what was considered the most desirable areas for purchasing property, selling property, and for lending money on properties. Um, It's color-coded as such. Green is A. Now, some of you may be in the investment world, and you may have heard these letters too, A, B, C, and D, that still exist in common investment um, investment conversation, at least in this market. Um, but this, to me, really exposes its, its a effects. property, b property, c property, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But when those a b c d when that when that was created, it it really meant something really specific. So um, a properties, b properties, c properties, and d properties. And if we're looking at this map here, the green properties are all on this eastern side of the. Ah. 
The D properties are centrally located in West. The red, red lining, the red spots on the map are um, considered the worst properties. And we're gonna, I will, um, I'll read some specific descriptions here. Um, and then let me zoom in, hang on a second. Let me know if this is actually working. Is that zooming in for everyone? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Cool. So I can't zoom in on the map itself, um, but as we look right here where my, so Louisville folks, right here where my mouse is going down, this is Knight Street, right in here. Okay. So that's, you know, you know west of Ninth. you've heard, it was west of Ninth. Is, is, is a common, you know, topic or, or phrase that you might hear in the real estate industry, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me read some of the descriptions of some of these areas of, of what an A region yeah. would be. Now, so, now, before you do that, Ian, real quick, I just want to underscore the Homeowners Loan Corporation, okay, was established as a result of, of FDR's New Deal coming out of the Great Depression in 1933. Okay, so this is a federal organization aimed at, you know, recovery and helping the economy recover from the Great Depression. And this is the result. Go ahead, Ian. Yes, yes. And so even though there were, even though there were programs, the FHA loans and the VA loans and all, these were all, these were, these were new things and they were new opportunities. And yes, there would have been um black people who qualified for a VA loan, or there would have been black people who qualified for first time home buyer um, um, opportunities. But because of this information, it was extremely difficult for, for blacks to buy a property. And this is why. So properties that were listed as A, and I'm reading this out of this notes over here. Um, the properties that were listed as A, first grade or A grade were described as new and homogenous, meaning everybody that lived there was the same. Quote, unquote, in demand and as residential locations in good times and bad. Homogenous meant, quote, American businessman and professional men, neighborhoods with black or Jewish populations, or even those with the threat of infiltration of such populations, were not considered best or American. Now, as you can see, all of this is in the eastern part of, of, the, of the city. So this goes as far east. We can see Seneca Park over here. Um, this is the Highlands. We don't go too much. The city didn't go much further east than that at this point. So all of the green is over here. Yeah. So the east end, even in 1930s. That's right. The second grade were still desirable neighborhoods that had reached their peak, but were expected to be stable for several more years. So that's the blue. So as we can see, we have still in the east, some down here in the south. I'm most interested in this blue area over here by Shawnee Park. And I will talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Yeah. So, so, so West, you know, as far West as you can go, essentially yes. in the city, uh, bordered by the Ohio river on the West side. And, you know, anybody that's spent any time down there knows that, you know, there's 
beautiful architecture, grand, you know, Victorian Italianate designs. I mean, like massive homes um, down, down in this particular area, but even still it's, it's rated as second grade. Okay. By, by, by the time the thirties rolled around. And we will explain to that. And I will, I, I have some insight onto that as well. So third grade neighborhoods were quote unquote, definitely declining and characterized by ex- expiring restrictions or lack of them and infiltration by a lower grade population and the presence of influences, which increase sales resistance. So when they say restrictions, there were, it was still possible to put a deed restriction on who could purchase the property. So if you could, you could file a, you could sell a piece of property with a deed restriction that said a developer could build a neighborhood, develop a neighborhood, sell it to the original owner, the original inhabitant, and the deed could be restricted to say you could not sell this property to a black person. Incredible. So Ugh. some of these neighborhoods had those restrictions. So a C, one of the one of the characteristics of a C grade neighborhood area was expiring restrictions. So a lack of ability of the people that live there to to keep the area homogenous, as was described earlier. So it's less desirable because graded as less desirable because the inability to remain homogenous. Yes. Now there were some other things that um, when we look through some of these documents that show that are um, uh, influences that increase sales resistance, like areas that have lots of saloons as they call them or areas that have industry or areas that are um, n- near things that would be like, uh, up one of the things that the track up here is that there's an amusement park there. Um, things that um, make noise, you know, I mean, just like, just like we would have now. Um, yeah. But what we don't have now are, well, what we officially don't have now, what we don't legally have now are deed restrictions that, that can, that can. Segregate you know, based on, based segregate. on race. Yes. Yes. So now the bottom one, is the fourth grade neighborhoods were defined as areas in which the things taking place in the C areas have already occurred. So the C areas are going down and the D areas are at that point considered the bottom. These neighborhoods were described as, quote, the only hope is for demolition of these buildings and transition of the area into a business district or this particular spot is a blight on the surrounding area. So those are, those are the descriptions. Now, Here's an interesting thing. If we look at some of these areas in the West that are, um, so if we look, let's talk about B15 and B16. So B15, we are near Shawnee Park. This is now currently in 2020, a predominantly black neighborhood. Has been for my entire life. I'm 44. B-16, same thing. Beautiful park right here, Parkway. You know, a lot similar to what we have over here with Eastern Parkway and Shawnee mm-hmm. Park or Iroquois Park and, and, um, and Newcut Road and Southern Parkway. S- very similar. Um, except, except that this area over here is predominantly black. We know that a home on Southern Parkway or excuse me, on Southwestern Parkway might look exactly like a home on Eastern Parkway. It absolutely does. Footprint the same, 
same age, architecture, same, age, construction, quality, everything, everything. Proximity to a beautiful park designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. Yes. Same. But the property value of a property near Shawnee Park is maybe a third of what the property value of a property near Cherokee Park, and maybe, maybe even, maybe even and less. Maybe even more disparate. Maybe even more disparate. Mm-hmm. So, so why is that? Some, here are some descriptions here. So, if we describe the reason why B sixteen, the negative thing with B sixteen, is, and this is, and I'm just going to pull it. I'm just going to pull it out. Yeah. So this is what accompanied. This map. So this was a real map that was created by and and that was created by people in um, our market. Um, comes with an explanation, and there are some names. If you're interested, well, if you're interested in who is uh, who participated in creating this map, and and you can you can uh, pull this document up and look for yourself. It was real estate agents, real yep. realtors, appraisers. appraisers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the people that were, that were consulted for creation of this, you know, essentially engaged by the federal home loan mm-hmm. or homeowners loan corporation to provide an assessment yep. for these areas. And this happened in multiple areas too, but I mean, this is Louisville that we're talking about. So, so let me ask you, what, what do they cite as the reason for Shawnee Park receiving a, was it a C grade or a B grade? So Shawnee Park at this point was still a B grade, but this is why. So it is... So if we look at Shawnee, so the Shawnee Park area, which is B15 right here. Yeah. The detrimental influences are that there is an amusement park, which was Fountain Ferry Park, a white-only park, a white-only amusement park um, that was operated four months out of the year, is on the western area of this. Now, this makes sense. 90% of the area was under 1 to, two, 1 to 12 feet of water during the flood of 1937. Okay, but this was the first time flood water waters had ever covered any part of that area. So that is a that makes sense. Um, and then if we have some other clarifying remarks here, it says along Broadway are many large two story old residences, some business houses on Market Street. Western Parkway can contains some higher priced residences and then stuff about the flood. OK, so now let's look at this one right below it. So they've made a point to separate B15 and B16. 16 is not yellow yet, but- now It's an adjacent area too. So they're connected, they are connected. geographically. They're, they're right. Yeah, sorry. I forget everybody's not looking. I mean, these are right next to each other. And B16 is made up largely of what neighborhoods? It's Chickasaw. Chickasaw. Basically. Okay. Okay. Which, is, which has proximity to another park. Chickasaw Park. That's correct. So- if we look at the Chickasaw neighborhood, which is, I mean, so the, you, the, the architecture is the same. It is just as close to the river as B-15. Yeah. Um, there's actual riverfront property um, that's not parkland or golf course in Chickasaw. Yeah. Um, but they made a point to separate the two. And here is the main difference. The detrimental influence of the value to B-16 is the close proximity of the Negro Park to the south. Which is, which is now known as Chickasaw Park. Chickasaw Not sure Park. what the name was then, but. Right. It, um, may have, it, was, it was already called Chickasaw Park. So Shawnee Park was here, this large park. 
White Park, little bitty park right here, Chickasaw Park. Um, and the main differentiator between the value of the homes between in B15 and B16 was the proximity of the, to the black. So, so it's, it's a reasonable assumption then, okay, if it's ranked a B, okay, and, and just going by, um, you know, just going by their, their own criteria set forth in this assessment, right? It, the detrimental factors cited are the reasons why it didn't get a higher rating, whereas the positive factors are the reason why it didn't get a lower rating. Okay. So essentially, this is an A area except for proximity to a largely black population. According to the document that was that this I think that's a fair assumption to, to make. I mean, obviously this is 2020 and not 1937, so we can't ask these questions, but I think that's a fair assumption to make, right? Yep, I do. So, uh, incredible. Okay, so, it, so, so to review, and, and I go back to just, and it's incredibly damning and almost unbelievable, um, I guess I shouldn't say unbelievable. There's been, you know, numerous atrocities that we are aware of, so it shouldn't be unbelievable. But I mean, you can go back to um, pick an argument to make, right? Like um, outright saying that proximity to nearly all black communities is a detriment, but it, it also makes no mention, like in the in the A, uh, no mention of women, only businessmen. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the, the reference to, you know, homogenous and, and the likelihood to remain homogenous being a, uh, a factor in, in what led to higher ratings. Um, you know, then you go to the deed restriction issue, which is just outright unconstitutional at this point in time you know, in, in today's world. It's just, it's astounding, Ian. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing I think that a lot of people are are blind to that these types of things ever existed. They live in their bubble. We live in our bubble. We know that west of Ninth Street is very different than east of Ninth Street, but we don't know why. Okay, when you talk about systemic racism, when you talk about institutional racism, these are the institutions yep. that created segregation in our housing and our community. And I want to, I want to read one more. I'm not. I don't need to share my screen on this one though, because there's not really much to look at. But one of the documents, and this is um, folks and folks that are local will will understand. So Portland, which is the, which is in the northwest of the, of the town, which was some of the original settlement of Louisville or of the area that is now called Louisville. Um, you know, it is. It's a large portion. And it has a lar of, of the area west of 9th Street. It is the portion that has the most um, white people still. And actually, let's, you know what? Actually, let's do this. Let me share my screen and let's look at that. That's yeah, I think you should because I think it's pretty telling. Uh, hang on. I lost my ability to do that. Oh, there we go. I can do it if you can. No, I got it. All right. So here we are. Let me compare. We're going to compare segregation. So this is the awesome thing about this map. And this is why Jay and I really want everyone to know about this. Uh, Mr. Poe did such a magnificent job of um, creating this, this, um, 
wonderfully interactive document. So what we have here is a modern version of the map that we were looking at before. It has the, we have the, the same AB color and, code. Yeah, ABC AB and D ratings. Here we are, the B15, the B16 that we were just talking about over here in the west, green areas in the, in the east. Um, and this is Portland right here. So let's look at this, but we can overlay current segregation data. So if we just slide this over, you see it's the same thing. We can still see the, we can still see the, the codes shining through. Now, look over here on the, um, in the legend. Census tract. Census tracts data. Black populations greater than 80%. So 80% and higher of these populations here are black. This and then is that, the that slightly lighter shade of orange is, you know, basically 79%. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. so it's eighty to ninety-eight percent. So, I mean, that that that's a that's a twenty percent range, but still, I mean, it's virtually all eighty percent. All of the orange is eighty percent or greater. But look what happens above this line right here, above Market Street. So here we are in Portland. In Portland, this area up here has stayed predominantly white, even as this whole area shifted from white and remember blue meant white and when this original map was was made even though there's no there's no racial designation to the color but that is we have the the we we um, do know that blue was predominantly right and it received yeah. a b rating because of a homogenous population yeah immediately so, to the east the c becoming yellow meant slightly less white right mm -hmm. and, and so red that was meant predominantly white yeah, the, 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 this turning yellow in, in the 30s and 40s would have meant that it was becoming less homogenous or less white. Um, but this just didn't change up here. Now, this is an interest, so why? How is that possible? Well, when we look at the, D the explanation of, what made D of why D13 was given its grade, and the grade then was, okay, so it was red. It was red. Favorable inf in influences were good transportation, all city conveniences, schools, churches in the area, and also community business centers. So, you know, you think about it. You drive down Portland Avenue. I mean, there's like a little main street there in Portland. Um, it's close to the water. Um, it's close to there were, I mean, there were still, I'm assuming there were still streetcars going, going east and west right. and north and south at that point. Um, so the detrimental influences, age of properties. I mean, that's my number one beef with Portland right now is the houses are so tag on old. <laughs> right, but, right. <laughs> um, mixture of population. So that's number two, is that it's not homogenous. No restrictions. So no one could tell. There was no way to keep people out. After mixture of population and no restriction, then the mention of the fact that Portland is three blocks away from the river right after right. Flood. there are bars yeah. in the area, saloons in the area. And the majority was underwater in the 1937 flood. I don't know. I think if somebody writes this list, this is probably the number one thing, right? It should be the right. number one thing.
Sure. Um, but look, if we go down here, this makes some other makes gives some clarification. It says the Negro population is the, is south of Main Street, Portland Avenue, Bank Street, and a portion of north and a portion northwest of 18th Street is the best part of the area. Portion shown as Portland, largely inhabited by people of Irish and German descent, white people. Original owners were thrifty and in some instances have moved to better sections, but retain ownership of homes here. They, the approach to the better portion of area is through industrial and undesirable sections of the city. So this is huge. As people left this area, they didn't have to sell their homes. They were able to get loans or they had cash and were able to purchase in other parts of town. They were able to keep these properties and become landlords and build wealth for their families. Right. And that is the, that is a huge difference with what happened in the rest of this area. But, but the wealth, it, it's, it makes an important distinction too, but the wealth created from property ownership there Yep. resided in other parts of the city. And yeah. if you look at if you look at the predominant population then that remains, okay, but then the segregation that ensued, you you could make the logical assumption that they moved east into more segregated communities and took that wealth with them. Yep. Okay. I mean it's 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 pretty like this this visual right here Ian for the, for everyone that is not watching this. I mean what 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 you're seeing is a, a predominantly dark uh, orange area west of Ninth Street, south of Portland. Okay, um, that represents you know an eighty to ninety percent uh, African American population. Mm -hmm. You're looking at a swath in the middle of the city that represents mostly bordering the river, no residential units at all. Right. That is the central business district. And then immediately south of that, which is University of Louisville and other public lands. Mm -hmm. um, and then east of about, would you say about I-65? It's kind of like I-65 and east, a deep purple, which represents 80 to 90% white population. Yep. Well, and, and I, and so I've switched a little bit because that was just yep. basically on on areas that were segregated and the amount, the rate of segregation. But now if we just look at percentage of population by race, it's still, it, we still see it. So we have this area here is the, Portland. in the West is D13 area North of Market Street, just like it said. Yeah. Is the, is least populated by black people in the West, in the West End. But we can see that it began when when these folks were able to leave and keep ownership in their homes. Yeah. Now here's an interesting thing. So what? But what happened here? And I don't have any evidence. I don't have any evidence that says that this. Hang on. Sorry. I know I'm clicking kind of crazy. Give me a second. That's all right. I know I don't have any evidence that says that 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 says why B15 and B16 were different, but. This is what I, this is what we know. We know that these homes here are very well constructed. Yes. 
you've spent any time down in here, you know that these homes were are are. I mean, they have base. They have big basements, and they have some of them are you know they're nice bungalows and and they're well constructed, and they're not you know most of them are not falling down. They're not as old as the homes in Portland. Right, the shot where it's built with brick foundation shotguns. Like we're not, we're talking about a completely different kind of housing stock. And this brings us up the term blockbusting. That um, that we also learned when we uh, got our real estate licenses that they didn't really explain either. And so potentially this is an area where this could have happened. And I'm sure someone has better has has can tell us for sure. I do not know this, um, but blockbusting can be defined or ex explained by if an investor or, or an agent, a salesperson, was able to either place a black family in a neighborhood, like actually get them to close on a property in a, in a neighborhood, or hire someone to pose as a, of someone in this neighborhood, like go for a walk and a black hire a black family to go for a walk down a, down a street that was all white and then approach the white families in the neighborhood and say, you better get out now because here they come. I can yeah. help sell your house immediately for. So, and, so and a quick, a quick Google search de defines the term, right? Multiple yeah. dictionary, dictionary sites. The practice of persuading owners to sell property cheaply for fear that people of another race or class be, have begun moving into a neighborhood, yep. thus profiting by reselling at a higher price. So I, I, think, I think that last, you know, thus profiting part is a, is a byline. You know, the, the, the harm, I think, that was propagated by, you know, unscrupulous real estate professionals was they go into neighborhoods, uh, probably some graded, you know, um, some, some that were beginning to become more homogenous and took homeowners that had been in those areas for some time that preferred they stay homogenous and, and tried to incent them to leave yep. um, for fear of, you know, downward pressure on property values. And, and you're right, Ian, like real estate school, man, this is like a 10 second conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, oh, uh, block vesting, redlining and steering. Like, uh, let's move on. Like, and I, I don't know that that's 100 percent intentional, but I, I think you're absolutely right. But here's not the, enough time. Is so here's the thing. So if you can convince someone that lives in this neighborhood to sell their home for cheap and they can go buy a house anywhere. Yeah. Other than there. According to this map, they can go anywhere. But. According to this map, only a certain only a certain type of people can come can well certain types of people can't buy houses anywhere and are forced to buy in this one spot. Well, if they want a house, the demand for this population is great. Artificially, artificially inflated. Right. So they can they can they can convince this property, they can convince this this seller to sell cheap to get out because their life was on the line. Yeah. And then because of this artificial demand, thank you, artificially inflated demand, they could pump up the price and sell to a black family at a premium because they didn't have any other options. And that's criminal. Yeah. That's systemic racism. That's well, what and, and, and that's what hasn't that it's those types of things that have not um, 
that, that the community hasn't recovered from. And so if we're talking about a family that then has this house that in the, I don't know, in the 30s and 40s overpaid for, I mean, what happens when you over, overpay for a house now and the market shifts? Well, you're underwater. And what can't you do with an underwater house? You can't sell it. And then you're stuck. And you can't fix it up when the roof leaks. And so here we are in this situation. These people, these people were forced to purchase properties in this area, but they were not able to because of the equity that they came into the homes with. They were not able to, in some cases, keep them up. And they lost well, them. It's, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, you can see and connect the dots, Ian, where, where this one action Okay, that starts where you're talking about the the concept of blockbusting, for example. It doesn't it doesn't just artificially inflate demand; it restricts supply. Yep. Okay. So so if that's the foundation, the spiral right of negativity can ensue that is is very challenging to recover from. And you know you you might hear some people saying, okay, well, you know, civil rights movement. You know, if it's been sixty years and that kind of thing. But the truth is, is that here we sit in 2020, okay? And you need only look at the segregation tab on this to understand that as a community, we largely live in separate cities, mm -hmm. right? We may be proximate to one another, but we don't live in the same city, right? Um, you know, it, it's, it's um, and, and this had to start somewhere, right? It had to start somewhere. So overpaying for a property Okay, it leaves you less disposable income, okay, to handle unfortunate occurrences that come up in your life, death of a loved one, loss of an income, you know, a, a horrific accident, that kind of thing. You can't stomach those things. So what ends up happening? They end up foreclosing at higher rates. They get maintained less and property values go down. Investors come in and buy them cheap, turn, you know, owner-occupied areas into predominantly rental areas. and and it's the cycle perpetuates, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one more tab I want to show. So we talk about, well, this was 1940. This was 1950. Well, guys, that's not even 100 years ago. It's not. It's not even 100 years ago. It's just a few generations away. It's just a few generations back. And that's not, you know, families that the most wealthy families built their wealth over multiple generations. Hundreds of years, the most wealthy families. But we're talking about a population of our city and our country that was not able to do the traditional things, that has not been able to do the, tra to do the traditional wealth building activities um, because of practices like this. I mean, this map is proof of it. Yeah. And if the home and if the American dream was built on, the initial oh. idea of the American dream was built on buying a home this cut out a huge portion of the, of the, of the, of our population who was recovering from and trying to re come out of being slaves. Yeah. Slaves. 200 years ago. Yeah. So if this norm, so how, how could we be, how could without there is, yes, there have been laws that have, that have said things are wrong, things should be different. Yes, but it has not changed practices. In some no. cases it has, but it hasn't, well, what it hasn't done is it hasn't brought us together. I mean, look, here we are talking about segregation. We have, uh, 
if it's it, the deeper the color, the, the higher percentage of a black population and the lighter the color, we have as, as low, less than 12% everywhere over here. Look at this. Except yeah, for everywhere. spots. Newburgh, Butchel, Fern I mean, Creek. You essentially, you essentially, I mean, what's, what's, what's something you hear a lot from, from prospective buyers um, looking in Louisville? Where do, where, where do they want? Where do they want to go? What the end East of town? End. They, the want to, end. they want to be in the East. And sometimes okay. all they say is, I just don't want to be in the West. I, I hear that once a week. I just don't want I don't to be care where it is. I just don't want to go to the West End. Yeah. That, I mean, you do hear that. And you know what? That brings me to a question, Ian, because I want you to speak to it. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not the best idea to share the screen now because th- this was something you brought up in your Inman, in your Inman interview um, that I thought, was, I thought was incredibly powerful. And, and I think it's, it's something that we hear in daily practice that I think a lot of our, a lot of our realtors in this community can relate to. Um, you mentioned the, the request of people looking to rent to own, right? Now, now, you know, we're a fairly progressive company in terms of marketing, right? Like we look at all sources of generating business, right? So we end up having conversations with people that are not necessarily referrals, maybe at a higher rate. Than, than other real estate folks, right? And then other real estate companies. There's a lot of people in the industry that only deal with folks that were referred to them by past clients and they've been in the business for 30 years. We, we talk to a lot of internet leads. We, we talk to a lot of sign calls. And, and you said that you get a lot of questions from people asking about rent to own. And you believe, it said so in the article, you believe that that's, that relates to some of these, some of these you know, systemic, systemically racist concepts and, and, and constructs that existed. Why, give, give our audience the, the kind of short version on that because I don't want to keep you all day. But It's a hustle. It's a hustle. Right. So when you rent to own, there's this, if a, if, if a potential home buyer enters into agreement to rent to own, they are paying an inflated amount of rent for the promise or the hope that one day they will actually take possession of this property, deeded possession of this property. But in the meantime, they're not building any equity. They're just paying this inflated amount of rent. Now the investor may say, or the person who's rent, doing the rent to own may say, well, yeah, you're going to pay extra rent, market rent 750, you're going to pay 900, and I'll put the of extra 150 in an account for you, and that will be that will be part of the that'll be part of the purchase price. But I have spoken with enough investors, and then in enough in uh, investor webinars and read enough blog posts that really that investor would be perfectly happy to for the buyer, the potential buyer, the lease, the the tenant to never actually purchase the property. And they'll just find somebody else to charge a rent-to-own fee, charge inflated rent, have the lease until that person decides that they, that, that they don't want to live there anymore or that they evict them or whatever, whatever the deal is, and then they just do it again, you know? And so the wealth stays with this person who most likely doesn't live in that neighborhood. Yeah. Well, and so – you know, it, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that in 2008, the SAFE Act was passed, making this in mass illegal, essentially. Businesses operating as banks, mm-hmm. okay, essentially acquiring property to 
lease to own was or or contract for deeds, if you will, is another piece of terminology. That's it's not allowed to be done. I think you can do it up to four times, um, as long as you're not a professional dealing with a layperson. But but the truth is, is that this prior to 2008, there were people that existed solely to do just that. It was it was it was um, you know high rates of foreclosure, high rates of you know eviction that came. It was very small rates of actually exercising the purchase option. Right. That existed. And there are still workarounds to this day. The people that want to do it, they find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, fly below the radar, do it illegally, legally with, you know, operating in the gray or what have you. But but this is a practice that was put into place because the lack of a, of available credit to people of color, which is another form of systemic racism. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it and it comes from. I mean, literally, like the color of the D portions of the map being red is the, you know, genesis of the term redline. Mm-hmm. Okay, and 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 redlining can be a number of things depending on what you're talking about. One of them, meaning banks will absolutely not lend inside a red zone. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I, I just think I think it's incredible that we're still having the conversations that surrounding issues that are remnants of these policies. Well, let's show one more map because that speaks speaks exactly to what you just mentioned. So if we look at the mortgage data, all right, so here we are, the map that we keep going back to, the HOLC map, now, what we're going to overlay are the percentage of mortgage denials per census tract from 2011 to 2013. The darker the color, the more denials. So, so percentage of so essentially by applications. So this is denials divided by applications. So 41 to 75 percent of mortgage applications were denied if it was this darkest color. And look where we are. So, and this is not even, guys, this is not 1937 denials. No, this is 2011. This is 2011, as late as 2013 denials. And so look where it's not. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Look where it is. And I, I know that I, I know I keep forgetting that people, everybody's not looking at this. So as I'm moving around to the areas that, that have the, that have populations that we saw earlier that um, have more black people, yeah. there are more mortgage denials. Well, and, and um, I think, I think a, a couple of points, Ian. Um, so let's think about what was happening in 2011. Yep. Okay. So I, I, Ian knows this. A lot of you, um, a lot of you listening and watching know this, that, uh, I got into real estate about 2000 full time, about 2000 beginning of 2008. Well, we know that that was the dawn of the great recession, right? Uh, foreclosures, highest levels they'd ever been. And that lasted several years. Okay. 
by and large, I will say 2013 was the pure end for me in terms of foreclosure and mass. I didn't liquidate foreclosures very much starting in 2013, but 2012, it was still a substantial portion of my business. And I was, I, I sold as, I was one of the agents around town that sold more than anybody. Um, and the majority of them, I will speak from personal, personal experience because I don't have stats to quote, but I think it's fair to make the assumption that, that, that my experience was indicative of the situation. The majority of the foreclosures in this city were in the West. Okay. So, so property values had declined. Okay. One of the, you know, few times in history that property values year over year declined for a few years. and. Once in a lifetime investment opportunities existed, right? Okay. The majority of the opportunities were in areas that traditionally, you know, and, and as evidenced by the data we've shown today are African-American communities. Okay. Opportunities existed. Mortgages were applied for and 41 to 75% of them were denied. Okay for those areas, probably large in part for people in those areas who could have bought at historically low prices on the, on the back of, you know, a, a recession of the likes we hadn't seen since these policies were enacted in the, the 1930s. So, so sorely missed opportunity. And if you want to, if you want to tell yourself that these are problems of decades gone by, you need to look no further than that right there. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's incredibly telling, you know, I mean, Ian, you, you know me, I bought some property, right? I couldn't buy my own listings, but I saw, I, I knew, and I bought some property and you know, the properties I bought between 2011 and 2013, um, as investments are worth probably twice what I paid for them now. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. seven and eight years later. Mm -hmm. So, you know, an opportunity denied once again is, is pretty incredible. Anyway, you, you got, a anything so, to add to that? No, I, I don't. I just changed the map one more time to show an income income map. We kind of jumped to the mortgages and didn't talk about the, didn't talk about the, the, the incomes. And so if we're looking again at this map of segregation that we know um, is predominantly black on this left side of the screen and predominantly white on the right side of the screen, and then we look at the, at the income disparity, I mean, this shows, this tells us another way to look at the segregation of our city. Yeah. So, so you have what, what, what you were showing there, Ian, that last, that last screen, and you don't have to bring it back up, but you had some moderate incomes on the on the on the far west of the city, mm -hmm. right? I mean, areas that you you know can imagine were high income that still exist today. You know, Cherokee Park area, like Indian Hills, those areas uh, down along the river. Th those were then and are now the highest income areas, right? But you know, if you look today, you had moderate incomes to the west. Those went away. Okay, became low income areas as the segregation split as you drove a wedge right down the middle, you know, at 9th Street. Yep. So, I mean, it's just like there are so, so much evidence of what has happened in our own community. I hope as, as a result of this episode and, and watching and listening, I hope, number one, those that listen, go back and watch. Um, because I think the visual is stunning. If you don't have the opportunity to watch, go to the link and 
literally, this is this is an amazing interactive kind of experience, this map to learn and so many links to like supporting documentation, like you pulled up actual documents that were filed as a result of these policies being enacted. I hope you do that. But if you do nothing else but listen to this, I hope you have at least somewhat of a better understanding of why these universal truths that are are present in our community exist. What was the genesis of them and why do they still exist today? And maybe if you're of the opinion that these were yesterday's problems, that you understand that they very they are very real and they exist in very real ways in today's market. Yeah. Ian, you got any closing thoughts, man? I echo exactly what you just said. I, the these links that we're going to put in the episode notes, please look at them. There's going to be some some stuff that um, if you're if you were surprised that I brought up slavery in 2020, there's going to be a link to a New York Times um, a New York Times uh, uh, piece about slavery and about its importance and how it relates today. Please look at that. Um, please look at this map and play with it and learn like Jay and I have. It's been really, it's been really interesting and, and brought up a lot of conversations. If you're a broker or a mentor of younger agents, please talk to them um, about this stuff. If you, if you have the opportunity, when you have the opportunity to educate a first time home buyer about how it works, do it. Don't rely on the, don't rely on the lender to do it or don't rely on the urban league to do it or don't rely on, on their, their, their program at their, at their work going to give them a $5,000 grant. Don't no educate them, help them. You're the professional. We are the professionals um, yeah. in this industry. So um, guide, guide the folks that don't look like you exactly as you would the folks that look just like you, you know, treat everybody like they're in your sphere of influence. And that's, and I mean, and the world's different, period. Yeah. Well, and I, and I will say this, um, you know, in you hear, and it's an adage in the real estate industry that the majority of your clients, th this is with respect to age, the majority of your clients tend to be within 10 years above and below your current age. That's, that's a way of saying that people like to do business with real estate agents that are similar to them. That's a way of saying that, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it really doesn't. And I think, I think that it's probably true that the majority of white real estate agents clients are white people mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be that way. And maybe it's just because like you said, we don't live together because we don't understand each other. Right. So, so take the opportunity to understand someone, right. That may not look like you, right. And, and, and afford them the professionalism, the, the credibility that you have. But you know what? The credibility isn't there unless you take the time to learn. So I hope, I hope what Ian has shared with you today resonates. I hope it, it, it piques some curiosity if you've not previously had that and you take these resources and learn a little bit more. I know that I have learned a lot. Um, and, and these concepts are something that I was somewhat aware of, but I've learned all the same. So I really appreciate your time today, Ian, man. Appreciate you taking the time to speak to the, speak to the folks. Um, I think this was an amazing first episode back after a hiatus. I intend to continue to bring you new episodes weekly going forward. But, um, you know, I just want to give my sincere thanks and appreciation for you, you know, teaching all of us. So with that, this is a uh, resource. Real talk about Louisville real estate. I'm Jay Pitts for Ian Hooper, sir. Thank you once again. We'll see you next week.
Peace.